finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brand, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast where we read things and talk about them. Some episodes, almost exactly half of them, we talk about a novella or short stories. And then the other half, we talk about a comic book of some manner. And uh, we just so happen to this week, on this episode, that you are currently engaged in the act of listening to... Oh, wait, I lost the thread with the line below. We're talking about a comic book in this episode. <laughs> uh, we're talking about By Chance or Providence by Becky Cloonan and Lee Lowridge. How do you say that guy's name? I think it's Lowridge. Yeah. Uh, Cloonan wrote and drew the whole thing, and Lowridge did colors, presumably Cloonan inked and lettered it as well, I think. Yeah, it doesn't really say. It just lists the two of them, and his contribution just says colors. Yeah, he's a... Um, He's been around for a while. He's like a real, you know, colorist workhorse in the comics industry. I think he did like, he worked on like the Batman Adventures comics back in the day. Like the tie-ins to the OG Batman animated series. Oh, okay. I think that's, because I recognized his name when I read these. And I think that's where I recognized his name from. Okay. But Clunan is, uh, I don't know, I guess a few years ago I would have called her... A rising star in the comics industry, but I think she's pretty well risen at this point. I think it's safe to just call her a star. Well, it seems like she's had a lot of high profile um, jobs. She worked for Tokyo Pop, she worked for Vertigo, she worked for Marvel, she worked for DC. She was the first female um, illustrator to draw Batman, so she's got a pretty good portfolio at this point. Yeah, I remember that Batman issue. Because um, I think that's in the Snyder, like, New 52 run. And I remember that being a big deal when it came out. And I was excited for that issue. That was, like, when I was working at the library and I would just sort of go on my lunch break and buy comics at the uh, Brave New Worlds in Center City. Shout out to Brave New Worlds. And I remember buying that issue and it was, like, the first one that I read that week. And I would remember it being pretty good. I first became, I, I was, like, vaguely aware of her for a while. Because of the stuff she did with Oni, I think, was like her, some of her earliest work. Like, I think she worked on some Brian Wood comic, maybe? I don't know. I don't, I I don't remember what it was called. I didn't really look too closely into everything that she's done. I just sort of did a overview of her, like, hot hits, I guess you would call them. Yeah, but so I, I was, like, vaguely aware of her name, and then I became a real fan of hers... When she did a Conan, the Barbarian comic, I think with Brian Wood again, called Queen of the Black Coast. Oh, okay. Which is an adaptation of one of the most famous Conan stories where he, like, meets a pirate queen. And she had this really, like, intense, visceral, gory art style that, like, fit the character perfectly. And she drew a much... um, hotter Conan than a lot of people had been drawing in recent memory. And I think you can see that in the way she draws some of the, like, sailors and knights in this collection. Yeah, well, one of the things, we'll talk about that, but one of the things I really got, like, a sense from her is they really, they almost have, like, a romance novel feel, these three stories, and, like, the male characters 
could in fact be like characters from a romance novel. I I could see that, I guess. I mean, they're pretty dark. I would con- um I mean, except for the way their their endings, I would almost draw a comparison more to romances in the classical sense. Yes, exactly. More than the modern romance novel. One of the things that I thought was interesting about Clunan's career is that she did a lot of work which she called mini comics, which were small independent comics that she would create herself, print out, which were almost like zines. Yeah, that's a path that a lot of people take. I mean, there's lots of... I mean, I own lots of mini comics from conventions and stuff from people who ended up being bigger deals and some people who ended up just kind of always hanging out at that level. Also, quick correction, the letters... Uh, lettering is by Rachel Deering. Okay. So she Clinton didn't letter it herself. Okay. But everything else, inks, pencils, you know, layouts, writing, that's all her. Well, I really like that sort of DIY, you know, aesthetic that she has. These, so these three comics, I originally read before they were collected when they were self-published. I mean, this in a way is just kind of feels like that mini comic thing with higher production values. Yeah. Because she originally separately self-published all three of these. Uh, I think she did like a limited paper run and released them on Comixology, which is where I got them. Like I own each of these individually on Comixology. And then Image, yeah, Image picked it up and published this collection of all three of them. And that's what we read because the collection, so the original independent stories were written 2011 and 2013. And 2014 is the, compiled version it has all three of the comics plus it has a sort of a thick little bundle at the end of like um, prototype art and sketches and alternative covers and different sort of outtakes from the creative process yeah it's pretty cool it's a it's a nice uh, collection i would definitely recommend it if you're at all interested in it from our conversation i would recommend picking it up so there's three stories which you mentioned, yeah. compiled, and the theme is tragic love. All of these stories have some component of like love gone wrong, and there's sort of a very um, medieval kind of fairy tale gothic style that they're written in. Yeah, there's there's a doomed romance of some manner in each of these stories, and there's some kind of supernatural element they're also all very preoccupied with death yeah is like looms uh heavily over each of these stories let's talk a little bit about the art style her art style how would you describe it uh she's got a very slick and modern style um it's not dissimilar to dan mora who we talked about when we did klaus but she deals a lot with a lot thicker line heavier shadows there's more sort of grime and grit in her, uh, the staging of her work. She's got a real, she's a lot of big panels. Like, these are all pretty quick reads because rather than that sort of, you know, when we were doing Sandman and Swamp Thing, those were comics that were really dense, most of them, with, like, lots of little panels and very complicated page layouts. And she doesn't have so much of that. She does a lot of big panels. There's a lot of silence. And... She focuses a lot on small details. I think there's like a there's a lot of um, Mignola in her work with that same sort of like lots of insert panels of like just the character's mouth or like 
their hair resting against their ear to give you this sort of like really intimate feel. And then a lot of, she does a really good job of contrasting that intimate feel with the kind of darkness and danger to make it feel sort of like tenser and closer. And then the colors are very like clean, sort of flat, but like not, not especially painterly, but I think that really works for this kind of stark, dark style that she's going for. When I was looking at her, the first time I read the book through, I thought, oh, you can definitely see that she has this sort of manga-inspired... That too, um, sure, yeah. Like, you know, you can see that slant. But then as I looked closely after the second read and I started looking more at the artwork, I started to see, like, this sort of, um, maybe like a nod to, like, medieval tapestries. Mm -hmm. But then also I was thinking a lot about the... Japanese artwork that inspired the Impressionist and the Post-Impressionist. And then I kind of thought like her style sort of reminded me of a Post-Impressionist style mm -hmm. with the sort of flat panels with the graphic black lines, but then also like this sort of Japanese aesthetic, this fluidity, you know, like especially in the trees, when you look at the trees and the, and the one story that's about the wolves and you mm -hmm. see the forest the forest is almost like a part of the story because her style is sort of enriched like with this sort of manga and medieval but then also with an art nouveau style the women with their flowing hair yes. is very well not nouveau. just the women with flowing hair yes everybody's got flowing everyone's hair. got flowing hair but it sort of really reminded me of that sort of modern mashup of looking backwards. And the stories the same are the same way mm -hmm. because they're looking backwards towards like, you know, they're more like grim fairy tales than they are like fantasy stories because they have a really dark side. And I think that shows through with the artwork. It's a good combination of the writing and the art style and the coloring combining to make like this really not... A horror story. I mean, it's really hard to describe. They're not horror stories. They're not romance stories. They're not fantasy stories. But they have elements of all three of those components. Yeah, I think like if you if you gun to my head, uh, I had to like write a succinct genre description for these stories. I would probably say dark fantasy romances. Yeah, and that's. I mean, but we... even that feels a little incomplete. We talked a lot about like. I was thinking a lot about, like, when I read a comic book, because I don't read a lot of comic books, when I read a comic book, I always think, what writer is like this comic book? And the mm -hmm. whole time I was reading it, I was thinking about, like, the early Anne Rice, where she had these sort of very romantic characters, but then it was also an element of horror and fantasy. And I think that's sort of what this is. Yeah, I think that's a good comparison. I could totally see that. But, I mean, it's like... They're very emotional, very sort of intense and provocative. And the writing, I mean, there's not a lot of narrative because the graphics really tell the story just as well without the narrative. But all combined, they have to work together and that's what makes this like compilation really work. I think they're really well structured as short stories. There's that like maxim that I think maybe it comes from that list of... Um, that famous list of Kurt Vonnegut, like, rules for short stories, where it's like you begin the story as close as possible to the end as you can. And these all kind of feel like that, especially um, Wolves, the first one, really feels like this is the last act of a story that we have to intuit almost entirely through implication. And I think it works 
really well. These all feel like they, like Demeter is maybe the most like, com not complete, but the most like basically constructed uh, short story where it's like, here's the introduction of the characters and stuff. The other ones especially feel like they have this real sense of like history like that these are these might could be individual like uh poems in like a cycle like if you were reading like a mort to arthur or something you might stumble across wolves as just like one poem in there and it's like oh yeah this like knight from earlier this is his story when it's got like a werewolf in it well that's i mean it's interesting that you bring that up because we talked about the art nouveau and then those stories and the illustrations you know by the sort of post-impressionist and things like that you think of the um is it rousseau no the painting of the ophelia that was meant to be an illustration to one of the shakespeare stories oh yeah you know those kind of uh artists the new romantic artists those kinds of things this is almost the same thing it's a it's a meld between art and literature yeah i think like also, I, I don't know if it's necessarily in, like, the actual, like, nuts and bolts line work of a rendering, but I think in, like, the visual style and, like, her particular aesthetic occupations, there's a lot of, like, uh, pre-Raphaelite stuff. That's exactly what I was thinking about, the pre-Raphaelites. Like, yeah. Uh, like, um, Demi what's the, what is his name? Uh, Dem Demeter in particular made me think of that painting, if we're comparing them to paintings, um, Isle of the Dead? Yes, is exactly. Is Bachlin? Yeah. So the painting I was thinking about is called uh, Tate Breton by John Everett Milias. Yeah, he's a, that's what, yeah, yeah. that's, I, kn I knew the painting you were talking about. Yeah, that's like a pre-Raphaelite dude. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, even though her style is more sort of woodcut inspired, like, the Art Nouveau artist, mm -hmm. she does sort of draw on that sort of heritage of the pre-Raphaelites because they were very in tune with literature mm -hmm. and art and painting combined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, her, and so like on a writing level, I think these stories sort of fit into, there's this, and I don't know how much anyone sort of talked about it as a movement, but there's this kind of uh, current of you know, largely written and drawn by women comics in the kind of upper tier of the indie scene that are very horror focused. They draw a lot on dark fantasy and fairy tales and stuff like that. Emily Carroll's like a big proponent of that. And there's like, if people read this and they're into it, they are in luck because there's a ton of other comics that have like similar vibes. I don't know if any of them quite get at the kind of like, blood-drenched, sad love story thing that Clunan is doing here. Right. But there's definitely... She's definitely part of a... If not a movement, then like a moment. But I think there's a huge, like, market for this type of fantasy, even supernatural romance genre. Like, you think about, like, a writer like Anita Blake, who's, like, really popular. Well, that's the character. Well, yes. But I know what you're talking about. So... Yeah, but those are uh, bad. They, I think I told I told you that that was the only series I will read a series to death. I'm still reading the Dan Brown series, the Robert Lagnan series, because I will not give up on a series. But I gave up on that because it just got too 
too risque for me. I just couldn't deal with it anymore. I didn't even read it, but I was like keeping up with um, reviews of the comics. Laure- oh, Laurel K. Hamilton. Yeah, yeah. I knew she had like one of those like writery ass writer names with a with an initial in it. Yeah. Uh, so do you wanna do you wanna get into the story specifically at this point? Sure, but let me check this Anita Blake. I gotta find out how many books are in this series. Oh, yeah. No, I'm actually very interested. I wanna guess. I wanna say there's 15. There's gotta be more than 15. You think it's more than 15? How do you know off the top of your head, or, or like in Ballpark, how many are in the like Suki Stackhouse? There's gotta be at least 25 in that. That's another example of like. There's 27 books so far. In, in the, the Anita series. Blake Vampire yes. Hunter? What is her superlative? What does it say? Vampire Hunter. Okay. I don't know how much vampire she's hunting because when I quit the series, like, around... It's like werewolf powers or something, right? I quit the series at, like, nine, and she was, like, having sex with 16 different vampires at that point. And I just had to, like... Anne Rice was right. It was just too horny. If it's too horny for Anne Rice, it is just too horny for anyone. But, yeah. I mean, there's a... (laughs) I feel like there's a much subtler horniness to Anne Rice where it's mostly, like... Just loving descriptions of, like, a dude's puffy shirt. <laughs> That's true. She's more romantic. Yeah. So, but don't get me started on either one of them. I feel bad for Anne Rice. Because she gets this impression, I think, now, that she's, like, jealous. Yeah. I think a lot of, like, talk about her gets framed that way. With her, like, trying to start fights with other people that write about vampires. But it's like, like you just said, she's not wrong, ever. Like, when she was talking smack about Twilight... Like, was she wrong? Tell me where the lie is. Well, I think it's, I mean, it's safe to assume that, like, 25 years from now when people are talking about vampire literature, which I'm sure is going to be a course at some place. They're going to be talking. already is. They're going to be talking about an interview with a vampire because it is far superior than any of the Twilights. Sure. So. Uh, I mean, I never read the Twilight books. I saw the movies. <laughs> um. Yeah. I read the first one because at the time I wanted to, everyone was reading it. Yeah, you had to, to know. Be... See, I had that impulse too and then it's like a fucking door stopper and I'm like, nope, I don't need to know that bad. Yeah. It's like, it's, it would be like if you were like, hmm, what's this Harry Potter thing like and you were going to start by reading Goblet of Fire. <laughs> it's like, no, I don't have the energy for that. Yeah. But I think there's, I mean, there's. I'm not even getting... We could do a whole episode on, like, sexy romance vampire literature. Which... And I'm sure... Uh, shout out to Vince, co-host of Nerdy Neighbors. I'm sure he would love that. <laughs> uh, Vince, we... we'll do that for you next time. I'll start reading. I'll take the bullet for you. I'll read Nita Blake so you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Let's so talk about we wolves. We got really sidelined. Yeah, so wolves From is... vampires to wolves. I mean, wolves is a... It is a werewolf story, essentially, but in a very... Again, like, a very classical sense. It's like... Because the werewolf... Like, traditionally, is like this sort of... It's like an outcast, right? You become a werewolf if you're excommunicated from the church, or your burial is fucked up. And this kind of... Is riffing on that idea of like the werewolf as like the condemned. I, w- I thought you were going to say the werewolf is love. I mean, yeah, kind of. <laughs> so it starts out there's a hunter and he is tracking a beast by order of the king. Yeah. He's a hunter 
I guess he's a woodsman. There's always a sexy woodsman in these stories. I think, you have he, to. I think he's a knight. He's a knight, and he's referred to as a hunter. And he turns out that he's hunting a werewolf. And he fights the werewolf, and he kills the werewolf. And then he, in the midst of the fight, he realizes that the werewolf is his lover. Well, it's Who a, is the queen. Yeah, but it starts off... It doesn't start off with him hunting. It starts off with what is essentially, I think, the thesis statement of this whole collection, which is a black word balloon with white lettering that just says, you are cursed. Yes. Because it starts with him dirty and disheveled, still hot though. Yes, of course. Wandering around in the mud and the muck in the woods, shirtless, like naked and like haggard, and he kills a bird with a rock and eats it with his, like raw with his teeth. And then it flashes back to him as the hunter. And so we know, like, from the very beginning, we know that this guy is cursed. We are told immediately, you are cursed. And, like, this, something bad's going to happen to this guy. He's going to fall from grace. He, is, he will become a monster in the same manner that he's hunting. And then we get lots of, like, flashbacks throughout his hunt to him with... His lover, and then she's revealed, like you said, revealed to be the queen. So, like, this story is sort of like, I I like the structure of this because the story is basically already over when we start reading it. And we are given the, we have to piece it together before we reach the end of the comic. Which, I mean, it's not hard to do, it's not a challenge, but it's like, we get these sort of little fractured images. Yeah, and I think, I mean, to talk about how the aesthetic of the hunter, the knight, he definitely has this sort of dirty Jamie Lannister kind of like look about him. Sure. Like when Jamie goes off the rails or like after, you know, season four or whatever, and he becomes like that scruffy kind of sad, hurt character. But it seems like the king is like set. I don't know if the king know the king must know that his wife is the werewolf because he sends specifically her lover to hunt down the wolf well when he so when he kills the the whole time he's like fighting the wolf which like the reveal of it is awesome because it's we get these we're getting these flashbacks that are like all of the present day stuff is like white and blue and black and then we get these gauzy flashbacks that are like rendered in pink and she's doing the thing that i said where it's very like hyper focused on details it's like a panel of just like his lover's lips a panel of just like his feet in the doorway and her eyes looking at him and he mentions her eyes and how they sort of linger with him. And then he sees the wolf and he says, uh, it is not the size that chills me, not the teeth or the claws, it's the eyes. But then that caption box of it's the eyes isn't over a picture of the wolf. It's over another gauzy pink flashback panel of him in his lover's embrace. Yes. I like when he's fighting the wolf and then there's a like a panel and it says clang and it has like... The wolf's teeth, and he has his sword in the wolf's mouth, mm-hmm. flat, and you can see there's like scratch marks of how many beasts he's already killed. Yeah, and then he has this like brutal struggle with the wolf on like a cliff, and when he kills it, he says, "I know, now I know, he knows, and I have done his bloody deed for him." So yeah, I think I think what's the narrative that I picked up from this is the king has found out that. His wife was cheating on him with this knight. He banished her, and in banishing her, cursed her to take the shape of a beast. 
and then sent the knight to he sent the knight to kill her and then also in effect banished him and in banishing him steals his humanity in some way and i think you're right because that the the scene after it changes from the blues and blacks and grays and turns into the sort of browns and oranges of the final act of the story there's a scene where the hunter takes the body to the third room and mm. he's almost like sort of he has this sort of and you know this sad persona but he's also being like antagonistic because he throws the body on the ground and the hand falls out and to show the king that he did do what he asked him to do. Yeah, and then the king says, you can never return to this place. We get the second repetition of, you are cursed. And then he goes off into the woods. And then the very last page is this really cool image where it's, like, all white, and we get sort of, like, rendered in, like, silhouette or, like, reverse is the, like, forest with him walking into the woods and his shadow is the hulking werewolf. Yeah, and I think that's where it sort of blends the blue and gray tones with the sort of washed-out, like, peach-colored tones of their relationship. So I think the color is really sophisticated in this story. Yeah, the colors are great, and they do a lot to sell the story. Uh, And, yeah, this one in particular, but I think that's also true for the other ones. But I like this thing that's going on here with this, like, uh, you know, the king is essentially, by being, like, in charge of civilization, and civilization being so tied to our perceptions of humanity, he essentially becomes the arbiter of who and who, who and who is not human, but because he's one man, those decisions can be laid down to his own personal grudges and desires well yeah i mean he is trying to seek revenge for not because of his wife having but because he got cuckold i mean he's he is punishing the hunter yeah by forcing him into this untenable act of killing a beast which ends up being his lover in the Mm -hmm. long run and then he's doomed to this sort of cursed life where he has to live in the forest as a werewolf himself because he's during the fight he gets infected well yeah during the fight. Yes. Well. But I think, like, I mean, there's a, like you said, it's a completely fleshed out story. And it's only 30 pages with very little text. Yeah. So you, I mean, you just need, you know, you can fill in the parts based on the clues that you're given, which makes it more sophisticated because not everything is written out for you to quickly read. But you can, yeah, and you can feel the weight of the rest of the story. Like, this has all of the... The sorrow and drama of being the final act of this, like, courtly tragedy about this, you know, young promising knight whose love dooms him. Except we only see the part where he is actively being doomed. Right. But, I mean, the king is also suffers the consequence of the decision he made to hunt the werewolf. And also the fact that his wife was unfaithful to him. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's three tragic lovers in one story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Four, if you count the wolf. Well, the woman, a wolf is the lover, right? Right. Also, the wolf looks great. We didn't talk about the visual of the wolf. It's a it, like, it's a, it's got kind of like a flat face and like these big, empty, haunting eyes, and it's sort of like hunched and hulking. It's not like a. It's a pretty novel take on a werewolf. It's not like she's not copying it from anywhere, and it does have that kind of like you were talking about this kind of medieval 
woodcut feel. Like, this kind of looks like a monster you might see in the margins of, like, a medieval manuscript. Yeah, I think it's almost, it's really, like, it's cat-like, it's dog-like, it's very human. Mm -hmm. But I feel like it's also sort of very much like, you know, like, Red Riding Hood. Like, there's this giant menacing wolf, this sort of big elongated torso and Mm -hmm. claws and... You know, so, you, I mean, there's a one scene where he, you only see the shadow of the wolf and you see the claws. Yeah, yeah. So, so what did you, so, like, I want to get your opinion, sort of, like, as we go. So, like, pres- assuming you didn't do something weird and read the stories out of order, this was the first one you read. So, what were you thinking, like, when you got through this one? I liked it a lot. I really, I, I think this sort of edginess appealed to me, that sort of... Because, like, you worry when you hear, like, oh, these are stories, they're tragic love stories written by a woman. And you're like, okay, this, are they going to be pandering or, or, you know, or what's, you know, what's going to happen here? And I think they were sort of, it's really, like, overarchingly, like, a comment on, like, modern relationships. Mm-hmm. And I think, I thought that was interesting. I think they were really sophisticated. I thought they were provocative. I like the color, the the artwork. I thought everything about it was really good. I thought it was a really good story. Cool. Yeah, I'm glad. I remember reading them and thinking that you would like them. And like especially now, I think these are these these are very like dried up brain stories. These feel of a piece with like a lot of the other stuff we talked about. This feels like you know, fucking Morpheus could have shown up at the end of this. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I feel, yeah, I think, I think this is, like, our aesthetic, this sort yeah. of nexus of, like, when horror meets fantasy is, like, right in mm-hmm. the wheelhouse. So, I did, I like that a lot. I was really excited after I read the first story, because I was like, I'm going to just keep on reading. Uh, yeah, so then we're going to, I guess, let's move on to the next one, which is The Mire. So, this one, it's like, there's a, it's more medieval knights type guys, and they're preparing for a battle we don't really get any ever get any of the specifics of like i guess we do get a little bit that there's like a traitor or something but you know there's a war happening and the like commander guy sends his uh squire yeah i think that's the word out uh into the swamps to deliver a message. And what it comes clear is that he's sent him there to keep him out of the battle, which he's, like, hungry to prove himself in a very, like, young, scrappy hero way. He even kind of looks like a Luke Skywalker. Exactly. I think first, when I first started reading this, I thought they were related to the... I thought there was, like, an interconnectedness mm-hmm. through all the stories. And maybe there could be, but I don't think it's necessarily clear if all three of the stories relate or take place even in the same sort of universe yeah i mean like you said they could there's really no indication to believe one way or the other i think it's definitely much more of a sort of like thematic tonal aesthetic unity between them than any sort of like genuine narrative yeah connective tissue so the the knight who sends his squire off into the mire into the swamp to go to this castle to deliver the letter is the leader of this battle. And his young squire is sort of young and excited. He wants to be involved in the battle. And he wants to protect this right. guy. So he sends him to 
this castle on what he thinks is going to be like an uneventful trip to deliver this message. And as he walks through the forest, he realizes that the forest is filled with these frights. And at one point he comes across this, this sort of knight on a horse who's like obviously dead and chases him. And then he ends up in the castle and like a true like gothic horror, like a ghost story almost he searches the castle and he thinks he finds someone. And when he goes into the room, the bedroom chamber of the queen or the lady, the lady of the manor. Yeah, who he sees a portrait of when he first enters the castle and thinks she looks familiar. Yeah, And then he finds her in her bed and she's a desiccated skeleton person with a knife stuck in her chest. Right. And then that's when you realize that there was a, there, it was either a murder, suicide or a murder and the the lord of the manor is also cursed to um, walk around the mire because he's haunted. And then she tells him to read the letter because the letter is for him. And that's when you start to learn that the squire is actually the son of the lady of the manor and the knight. Yeah, so the... the he has a name, I think. What is it? Her name is Lady Ellen. And... His name's like Sir Owen or something like yeah. that? Yeah. Let me go back to the beginning of the story so I can see where I can find his name. Yeah, Sir Owen. Uh, or Owen. Owen? So he... As what we learn is that he at some point as a younger knight uh, was at this castle and fell in love with her. And they had an affair. And then he had to leave. And then she ended up pregnant and sent the kid... She, gets, she was, the, the kid was, the baby was given to, like, her handmaiden to abandon in the swamp. And instead she delivered it to his father, who, I guess, bound by knightly obligation, could not reveal that that was his bastard son. And instead, like, raised him as his squire. And then sent him off to this castle to protect him from the battle, in which the very last page we see that Sir Owen has died on the field of battle. Right, and then it turns out that the reason why he sent the letter was, like you said, to protect his son from death on the battlefield. Yeah. And also maybe to meet his mom. Sure, probably also that. <laughs> but yeah, there's, this also like has lots of like old school sort of references to like fairy tales and other classical stories. Like when he walks into the, when the squire walks into the, um, into the withering, that's like the wood swamp area. There's, like, will-o'-wisps that he follows, and that's, like, a classical thing. Like, oh, these, the, the will-o'-wisps in the swamp lead you astray from your path and into to weirdness. And basically, for him, into the kingdom of death. Because then he meets that deathly knight who's got, like, a skull face and worms crawling out of his lips. And she, this is an interesting thing where she kind of renders... It almost looks like he's wearing makeup. Yeah. Like, it feels very stagey in a way. Because she draws, like, his face out completely with all the facial features and then has, like... The, like, features of the skull sort of rendered over that. Right. So it's almost like he's wearing, like, vampiro skull makeup. Or it's like maybe he sees him at the same time as both, like, dead and alive. But he says that, that this is my land and you are a trespasser. Right. And I think that's when he sees the portrait. He sees, he can see the features of the ghost rider in the portrait of him. Of the of the manor, 
what? Lord of the Manor and his wife, when he goes in, he sees this giant. I mean, it's huge. I mean, it's a short panel, mm. but the picture, like, compared to the little young man, it's, like, huge. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, this also has that, like, feel of, like, oh, there's like, a whole story here that we don't see. Cause this, it's never really clear, like, why is the, the castle... The castle's abandoned when he shows up. There's no one there except for the lady who's dead and the lord who is presumably also dead and has become this kind of avatar of death as like a concept but it's like something happened here that cursed this place and emptied it out and then you know there's also in addition to that there's the whole other story with sir owen which has a lot of like it reminds me of like Gawain and the green knight like there's this castle in the woods and this like weird lord who's like roaming about on the land outside. Like, that's what happens in The Green Knight. Gawain meets the Lord outside of the castle and then follows him to the castle. But then it's like, we don't ever really know what's going on with him. Well, yeah, and I was kind of like a little bit... I thought maybe that the castle was almost like this cursed place from the beginning because he wanders in there and he spends three months with her. And then he leaves, mm. and then she has a child, and then he ends up raising the child. And then when the son goes back, there's no telling how long he's actually in the castle. Yeah. So it's almost he's long like... He's in there long enough to miss the battle. That's all we... The only other indication we get of how long he spends there. Yeah, so maybe it was always cursed, and he was under her spell. Like, who knows? Cause like, she might have been a ghost for many years, and he, you know, was taken by her ghost or whatever Mm -hmm. because i mean it's kind of like it is like a ghost story or like it's definitely a ghost story i mean it's a guy wanders through a a abandoned castle and meets a talking corpse like it's absolutely a ghost story but i mean she's a ghost and she's a corpse and then her husband who is forced to roam the mire is also some kind of ghostly corpse horse rider so yeah, I think this one's like I like this one. I think it's probably of the three my least favorite. I I think I would rank this as my second favorite. The Wolves was my favorite. The Wolves is my favorite too. So. Uh, but yeah, I dug this one. I don't think that it's like. I think after like the the starting blow of Wolves this isn't quite as impressive, but I think it still works really well and has a lot of what I liked about Wolves in it. I think the, I like, um, the way she renders some of the flashback with Sir Owen and Lady Ellen, where there's, like, one page where it's clearly, like, split up into three panels, but there are no actual panel, uh, divisions. Right, It's just, like, this big splash page where it's, like, the top is, uh, Lady Ellen on the balcony, and then the page is split in half by this big rendering of, uh, her and... Sir Owen in Embrace, and then the bottom panel is the squire reading the letter. But see, that's the part that made me think that maybe it was almost like the Lotus Eaters in a lot of ways, because, like, he was going through the swamp, and he's, like, in full battle gear, and he sees a woman on a tower, and he Mm. goes there, and he ends up spending three months there. And there's no clue as to where her husband is. Yeah, I definitely think the implication is, like, Sir Owen had this whole other, like, King Arthur questing knight story where he found this weird castle and fell in love with the beautiful lady that just happens as the backstory to this. Right. 
Yeah, because then he shows up and he's he's raising the squire, whose name is Aiden. Yeah, okay. His Aiden. son, Aiden, who's the squire. But for some reason, instead of just saying, like, you can't be in this battle, I want to protect you, he sends him to a cursed castle to deliver a letter to himself. Well, that's a way to... <laughs> and then the letter is just like, bury my... Find my body and bury it. Yeah, he says to come back, and then he says, find, yeah, find my body and bury it. That's the very last line. Then he signs it. Oh, and then we get this, like, last page of, like, you know, this red sunset page of, uh, it's like, Knight's dead on the battlefield. They She does a nice little touch where she has his shield uh, behind his head, and it creates, like, a halo. Yeah. Sort of like those, like, you know, all those images of, like, King Arthur with, like, the halo behind his crown and stuff. Yes, it definitely has this sort of Arthurian kind of like aesthetic. This sort of high gothic knights in armor. Yeah. But I think it's interesting because he's like, instead of like the classic knight is trying to save the damsel in distress, he's saving his son by using the damsel as a way to save. But I think the only part that really didn't seem flushed out to me, which is funny because he's a corpse, but is like the menace of the husband. Yeah, he's just kind of in that one page where... And he's like, kind of like, he's like, you're on my land, and he just runs away. Yeah, that's, he's so dramatically revealed, too, where it's like this huge, imposing rider in the swamp, and he's a corpse, and there's a big panel of his face, like I said, with like the worms coming out of his mouth, and then it doesn't really pay off with anything. I mean, I imagine if this was like a more fleshed out story, he would be some kind of villain... Or threat figure. But as it stands, he's just kind of like an interesting, creepy detail. Yeah, so it's almost... That's what made me think that maybe Owen had also fallen under the trap of the, the the Lady of the Manor. Like, maybe she had been a corpse for more years than that. Maybe the whole thing was the sort of... Oh, the impression fantasy. I got was... The, the, the story that I assumed we were supposed to infer was that... The Lord found out that he was being cocked after Owen had left when the baby was born, presumably. Um, the baby was sent away, and then he killed her, and in killing his love, cursed himself and the manor. Right. That would make sense. Yeah, that seems like a, definitely a way for a haunted manor to get its two ghosts that it needs. Because she's laying in the bed, and she's got a knife in her chest, and like... Yeah, that's what she says when he first walks in, which is kind of really creepy if you think about it. She says, come in, I, I can't move. And he goes and he pulls back the sort of bed mm. covers, you know, the, the curtains that they put around the beds. And there she is, and she's like a fully desiccated corpse. But she's fully dressed in this, like, glamorous mm-hmm. medieval outfit. And she has the same sort of long braid that she has in the picture. Yeah. And then... There's great facial expressions in this. Aiden's facial expression they on that page when she says she's been waiting for 14 years and he's like, I don't understand. Looks great. Also, like, if we're speaking to, like, the anime manga influence, he's got, like, the sweat drops yes. on him because he's concerned. Yeah, and I think that's kind of... And also, he's sort of... He's, he's like, the classic sort of bumbling, immature character. Like, yeah. he's... he's father the knight sends him in there with two days worth of food and like 15 minutes into his walk he eats all the food yeah and then he kind of so like a hobbit like just totally making bad choices and then he gets scared and he has to run away and you know he's kind of like 
he's not savvy in any way. And he doesn't even understand, like, what his ghost corpse mother is trying to tell him in the beginning. So, I like that, though. I thought it was interesting. Like no. you said. Yeah, I like it, too. Me saying it's my least favorite is not a condemnation against it. I think it's really good. I just don't like it quite as much as the other two. And I feel like they don't... I mean, she has a tragic story where her infidelity is revealed and she's punished for it. Yeah. But he doesn't know. He just leaves. Yeah. So he doesn't... His part of the romance is not tragic at all. Yeah, there's not really much of an indication that he knows when he sends Aiden to the castle that it's going to be corpse town. Yeah, that's true. But he does send him there to try to find out, like, his parentage. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was interesting. So it was kind of like, even though it's a tragic love story, it's not a love story in the traditional sense. It's like... He loves his son and wants to protect him. It's also like his love. He can't love Lady Ellen because of the, the Lord, and then she dies, and he dies, and they're both dead. Like, there's that. Yeah. There's also something, I don't know what it means, but I think there's something to the way she sort of contrasts the death, the deaths and the sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? The corpsely repose of Ellen and Owen, where it's like, She's inside, she's desiccated, everything's gray inside of the castle. You know, she dies out of, like, malice and vengeance, and Owen dies, like, a heroic death, and he's under this setting sun, and everything's, like, peaceful and awash and, like, oranges and red, and he's got the, like, night shield halo thing. Right. I think it would have, I would have liked, even if it was just, like, one small panel showing, like, the Lord, like, in a rage and then murdering her because like whatever curse he's under he can roam freely in the swamp yeah but she is confined to the bed confined yeah so yeah there's a lot of like there's a lot of hanging details but and also i mean that i don't mind it though when he she when the handmaiden takes the child to the night she's just like you know, I didn't want to kill this baby, so here he is. And he's just mm. like, okay, fine, thank you. Like, I'll just take care of that. But he, like you said, he doesn't claim him as his son until he knows that he's going to be dead. Yeah. Because then he's like, son, come and bury my body. Yeah. Sometimes you gotta bury your dad's body. Yeah, so he dies on the battlefield in a mysterious battle. Sometimes you find out that he's your dad in the same sentence where you <laughs> learn you have to bury him. Yeah. So you're going to move on to the next, the, to the next and final story in the Yeah, collection? this is the longest story, too, of the of the set. Yeah, this one's so. called Demeter. So. Uh, and it is a, it's a real ocean-based kind of story. Seafarers delight. No, no knights in this one, but yes, but we do have a sailor. Yes, of course. So it's about this couple. Well, Are they... Wait, wait, wait. Go. Let's talk about the title because as everyone knows from listening to Dried Up Rain, I really have known nothing about Greek mythology. Uh, so I don't totally know why this is... Like, I don't have like a totally confident handle on why this story is called Demeter. So Demeter, for people who don't know, she's a Greek god, one of the, you know, like a sibling of Zeus and Hades, I think, right? And I think the reason that this 
story has this title is because she's famously the mother of Persephone, who ends up stuck in the underworld with Hades and can only return on a seasonal basis. And I think there's some sort of implication at the end of this story that somebody is going to have to spend some time in some manner of an underworld. Yes. So the story starts out, it's a story of a woman and her lover. And he's a fisherman, a sailor, who has returned to her following a shipwreck. And he does not remember anything before the shipwreck except that he loves her. Right. So... And he keeps going out to sea, and she doesn't want him to, and it's stressing her out really bad that he keeps going back to the ocean. And there's something, some kind of figure. Now, for people who are uh, well-versed in weird folklore stuff, they might immediately recognize this figure as at least, if not being a selkie, then at least implying a selkie. Do you know what a selkie is? Yes, it's like a sea witch, right? But they're like... But they wear a seal's pelt to turn into and out of being a seal. And so this figure that's like stalking their seaside cottage where they live has like a... Is emerging out of the water with a pelt over their form. Obscuring like their face. And she keeps having like visions of this thing. Like... Gnawing, like pawing around their their house and at their windows and stuff, and she has like dreams about the ocean and of this like face that's like haunting her, which is presumably the face of whatever uh, being is stalking them. And then she goes out into the shore at night and like feeds. I guess we find out that she like basically did a ritual. With the ocean to get her husband back after he actually died in the shipwreck. Right. And I think that's the the whole thing is, is that he has no memories of being, he has, he has no memories before the shipwreck. And then she somehow draws him back out from the sea. But the reason why he thinks that he's compelled to go to the sea is because he's a sailor. Yeah. So she's trying to stave off this sort of. This selkie, the sea witch that's coming for him by doing these sort of like rituals where it's like seven drops of blood for seven months. And what was it? Seven tears for seven. She keeps trying to like extend the time that he's on land. Seven months of life for seven drops of of blood. So she basically, she gives her blood to the ocean and to this like sea witch selkie being who's like we we get a good look at it finally uh when she's doing the ritual like the selkie's sort of like behind the rocks watching her and it's got like seawater pouring out of its eye sockets yeah and so i guess she basically only has the husband back for seven months and they're nearing the end of this cycle and he's feeling the call to the sea strong like more strongly than ever and then finally, she basically goes out to confront the Selkie and to plead for more time. And then at the same time, he opens this chest that contains like all of these like papers about him. And then more importantly, this like seal pelt that is like his now that he is like, I guess, one with the sea or whatever and is going to become another one of these like Selkie sea spirit beings. Right. 
And he puts it on and remembers everything and remembers that he died and he has to go back to the ocean. And then he leaves as she sort of like apologizes to him. And he returns to the depths. And then we flash forward and it turns out that she, at some point during those seven months, impregnated her. Right. She has a child, another kid who's doesn't like, doesn't know about their parent. And the kid keeps hanging around the ocean, and then at the very end, her dad emerges with the pelt on, and uh, the last page is, like, a picture of him in the water with, like, his finger to his lips, like, shh, and saying, shh. And so I think, like, the demeanor thing is, like, the daughter is going to presumably go into the ocean for a time. Like, her dad becomes this, like, essentially becomes, like, this aquatic Hades, like, this lord of the sub- aquatic underworld yeah i thought i mean i think i agree with all of that and but i think that the sea witch instead of being evil is actually oh i didn't uh, think she was evil but i think that she is like sort of the counterbalance to his land-faring wife that this selkie might actually be his seafaring wife and she just wants him back same as what the other woman wants. See, I took the Selkie. I figured he was replacing her. Like, in my interpretation, it was like, the Selkie is this symbol of, like, the the vast, mysterious, mythic, unforgiving ocean. And that when she made the deal to get him back on land, she also basically made the deal to give him to the ocean to be its representative from now on. Replacing this woman who had been serving as the, the avatar of the ocean for some unspecified amount of time beforehand. So you think she was trying to renege on the agreement that she made? I mean, I think the wife... Yeah, I think she wanted him back permanently and was, like, struggling against this obligation to the ocean. And then he basically makes the decision for her. I mean, I think, like, this is ultimately, right, like, a story about grief. It's about her coming to understand that, like, she can't get her husband back after he's gone. It almost, in my mind... Because, like, when the child is born... And they have the sort of epilogue in the child's growing up. It's almost like the husband was never there. Yeah, I think so it's the, like in her mind. I mean, he could have died in the shipwreck, and that could have been the end. And the rest of it could have just been an imagination of her, you know a manifestation of her grief, where she sort of compelled him to come back. Yeah, I mean, if we want to like take this and look at all of the supernatural stuff as purely metaphorical, then this is a story about. A man who died in a shipwreck, a woman who couldn't get over him, and then finally gave up on, like, holding on to this, like, false hope that he would return and went on with her life. Except, like, I guess the ending is this idea that, like, eventually the daughter's gonna learn about her dad. And she's gonna learn about the ocean, and because she's just as much his kid as hers, she very well might feel the pull to the sea that he felt that ultimately led to his death. But can can you just go into the ocean and die of a shipwreck and become a selkie? Or was he one before that? I don't know. I mean, maybe like any maybe the implication is that like every everybody that feels that call of like that like Ishmael esque like I gotta get on a fucking boat is at like some level of potential selkie. That's true. That's interesting, though, because, I mean, I really, I mean, I, I saw the sort of coding that she was wearing, the cloak, and I 
didn't put it together with that. I thought that maybe she was like a sea witch and that was sort of like a, like a cloak of like sea, you know, seaweed or something that really gives it sort of a different component that definitely gives it like a folklore feel to it. I think all of these have that. None of them are doing like riffing on a very specific, none of them are using like a very specific set of like mythological or folkloric rules. Like this is not a, a story that is exactly about a Selkie as they are presented in like, you know, whatever specific text you read about them in. And Wolves is not a story that's about any kind of specific, established, pre-existing werewolf. But she's using all of these things to sort of pack this feel, like I said, of like history and of tradition into these stories. Like they're a, a way to add a sort of weight to them. I also think it's sort of a flip on the traditional story. I mean, if you read, like, I just did five minutes ago, and I'm going to talk about it like I'm an expert. Mm -hmm. If you read, like, some stuff about Selkies, the sort of Celtic mythology about them is that it's a woman who lures a man to the sea. It's like a siren temptress. Yeah, or a woman who tricks a fisherman into falling in love with her. Mm -hmm. And then they, at some point, always abandon their human lovers to go back to the sea. Yeah, I mean, she does the same kind of flipping wolves, too, where it's, like, very often the werewolf is this, like, intense masculine figure of, like, repressed rage bubbling up to the surface. And in that, like, the woman is the werewolf, and it's more about, like, you know, the way that dudes demonize women like the king makes the his wife into a monster because he's angry about what she did well i was thinking i mean let's just there's two points i want to make before we get back to the story the first is like comparing this werewolf to the werewolf alan moore's werewolf from swamp thing this Mm -hmm. the housewife where werewolf and the sort of comment that he was making on how women are perceived in modern society it's a sort of a similar riff on that. Sure, yeah, I didn't even think about that, but you're totally right. Yeah, so then it's kind of like this sort of female werewolf is like, you know, like a feminist comment. Yeah. Which I think is, I think a lot of these have her female point of view about things like modern relationships and female and male roles and even gender roles. Like this Selkie one is a perfect example you know, he is a male Selkie that has abandoned the sea to take up with his human wife. Mm-hmm. So it's a flip on the sort of traditional story of like these women being sort of like supernatural predators where they prey on wholesome sailors and trick them into falling in love with them and dooming them to the sea. But I think what I was thinking, the second point I wanted to make is that this one has a false happy ending, which I think was a nice twist. Yeah. Because when you see the epilogue, and you see the daughter and you're like, okay, she lost her husband, but now she has her daughter. And then you, then it has this sort of twist where um, the, the husband has come to take back his child. Yeah. It's like this one doesn't so much have the kind of like dark doomed, you are cursed ending that like Wolves has or even the like the last panel is a dead guy ending that the Meyer has. But it definitely has this, like, implication of further loss and suffering. But I like that kind of ambiguity of the ending. And then I think, like, if my interpretation of the title of Demeter is right, 
then it's not going to be quite the same thing that happened with the husband. Like, you know, Persephone comes back to the underworld. Like, in my interpretation, the mother is Demeter, right? And the daughter is Persephone. And, like, Persephone doesn't all... It does get to return, but only briefly. Yeah, I think that's... I That's exactly the sort of rip that I got, was that she now is... She is a balance between both worlds. Yeah, yeah. And I guess... She won't be torn. She can actively move between them because she doesn't have a seat like a pelt on at all. No. So, so she's just sort of like a hybrid at this point. Yeah. Yeah. But it was interesting. I mean, I like that sort of flip of a, a traditional sort of folk tale, fairy tale story. Yeah, I mean, it's really cool. And there's lots of great. Uh sea imagery in this oh yeah the way that she draws the sea is really it's almost like it has a life of its own i mean the texture that she brings to sort of the sea when she's drawing it is very good yeah and the colors i work here are like it's a similar like contrasting color palettes thing where it's like all of the the ocean stuff and like people being under the water is all like in these uh awash with like green and then like we get these very like bright sort of pastel colors towards the end when like she's with the daughter and then the green comes back on the last page with the the you know the selkie father in the water. Oh yeah. Yeah, I like that a lot. I also liked it and we didn't talk about it, but in between the sort of like there's a half title page between each of the stories and it looks almost like sort of like um like an initial block that you would see like in a medieval manuscript. Yeah. Which yeah. I think is really nice. If I'm remembering correctly, those are those blocks are basically just used as the cover. No. They're they're in the original issues, but I think they have like covers that show up in that sketch section. Yeah. Well that was another thing. I like that a lot about the I mean, some of the sketches I couldn't relate to what story they were supposed to be. There was one sketch that was really sort of interesting was a giant heart. Uh, you know, like a deer, and there's a hunter. But it do- that doesn't seem to correspond to any of the stories. But some of the sketches you can see sort of like prototypes of the different characters. There's one that's a huge panel of a woman with a knife, and it's obviously wearing the same dress as the Lady of the Manor in the second story. Yeah. And there's lots of pictures of the sea and different fighting scenes and women... But my favorite, I like this one. There's two versions of it. It really does remind me sort of like a sand man, uh, like a swamp thing. Of uh, There's sort of like this man who looks like a green man and he has these gold coins on his eyes. He shows up in two or three of the sketches, which are really interesting. Yeah, I hope she does more stuff like this. I think there's a lot of room in this space of like riffing on, yeah. I mean, I, he, the, the one, he even looks a little bit like Elmore, I think. Yeah, you would if you told me that was a drawing of Alan Moore, I would believe you. <laughs> but yeah, I think there's like a lot of like interesting stuff for her to continue doing in this space of like riffing on these like fairy tale and folklore imagery and set up and do exploring these kind of tragic stories. I think the two it's interesting to note that the end papers are like obviously inspired by the sort of famous you know, unicorn tapestry, the medieval tapestry of the unicorn that's like frolicking in a meadow Mm -hmm. so i think she really does like a good job of like 
mashing different genres and inspirations into like one cohesive art style. Cool. I'm glad you dug it, like overall. So I wanted to, my question for you for this episode is how does this style of art, because I haven't seen any of her mainstream artwork. How does her style of artwork in this, is this mostly like her, her own hundred percent original style? And when she does like the Batman and the other, what does she do? Like Gotham Academy or something like Mm -hmm. that. Does she draw it? In a more traditional style, what is what's going on between her the style, two? Her, her style's not that different between like her for hire work and stuff like this. I definitely think that there's, you know, when she's drawing for another writer, she is at the whim of their pacing, and so you, I think there's a less uh, room for these sort of like contemplative, stylistic explorations that you get. In these stories, but it's not too too different. I think that this is maybe a little bit more like deliberate and thoughtful. You're not going to get quite as much like playing around with like the dark imagery in like her drawing a Batman story. But like her Conan comics read almost exactly like this. They're just more wordy. I would love to see a Batman in this style. I would love to see like like literally taking the Dark Knight. And converting him into, like, an actual Dark Knight. Uh, I think that would be cool. I wish... Uh, I've been saying for a while that I wish DC would do... They used to do these Elseworlds comics back in the day, which were, like... Some of them were, like, straight up, like, just, like, what ifs. Like, oh, what if, like, this story happened this way? But a lot of them were about transplanting the characters into different uh, genres and time periods. And so you get, like, Gotham by Gaslight and the Doom that came to Gotham, which is, like, Mike Mignola doing, like, a pulp adventure uh lovecraftian batman riff and you get like all, there's all sorts of them and i think it would be really fucking cool to to get a sort of like dark fantasy medieval batman elseworld from clunan i would i would read the hell out of that she would do a really good lovecraftian oh yeah i think so story i mean i would really yeah i would be interested in seeing that I, like I said, I hadn't read any of her other work and I didn't know her as an artist, but it just from this sort of little sort of, you know, snapshot of the work that she does, I really think she's incredibly talented and and very imaginative. And I think that's probably like something that's really going to take her far in her career. I mean, hopefully she just continues to create more work. I also like the idea of these sort of mini comics. I think that was like really interesting, like that you, that she would do the entire comic process herself to keep a hundred percent of the creative control. Have you seen any of her like work that she did with Tokyo Pop or any of her sort of manga? Inspired? No, I haven't. I would like to check that out. But no, I haven't, I haven't read any of that. Is it common for artists to go like across genres like that? Like manga is like one specific but aesthetic. But Tokyo Pop was like a different thing. Tokyo Pop had, um, they made a push at one point to do uh, OEL manga, original English language manga, which is basically just like comics with a different sort of marketing positioning. Right. So they published a fair amount of stuff that was from English language writers and artists. And I think a lot of the, that stuff, it was like drawing from a similar scene as like the Oni comics stuff. I think it 
it's, I mean, it seems like they're two different specific fan bases. There are fans who cross over. I know you like manga and you also yeah. like mainstream commercial comics, but a I lot mean, of people I think that keep idea, themselves separate. The idea, I think, behind that OEL stuff was to try and sell American or Western comics to people who had previously been like, I only read manga. But if it's like, if this is from the same people that are selling me, you know, my Fruits Baskets volumes, maybe I'll check this out. Yeah. Yeah, I think. But then that kind of like Tokyo Pop died. It's a weird thing thinking about it because they were so dominant for so long. I remember like, when we went to, we would go to the Comic-Con. Yeah, we'd go to Wizard World. World and they would have like a huge booth and they would have be promoting like a million different Things they used to basically like the manga section at Barnes and Noble. I think it was, man, I think they had like a deal with a bookstore. I think it was Barnes and Noble. It was almost entirely Tokyo Pop stuff. Yeah. And then they they they're still around, but like they mostly publish like the like Disney's manga of Cinderella or whatever. Like I don't know who's reading those, but. That stuff's still out there if you're interested in it. Princess fans. But I think the problem with them is a lot of the publishers, the Japanese publishers that they had deals with, just decided to form their own Western publishing houses to put their own stuff out. And so they lost a lot of their their highest selling titles. And a lot of them also just like ended. Fruits, Fruits Basket ended. I don't know why I was beginning a discussion about the history of, of English language manga <laughs> publication, but it did, albeit briefly. It's all really, I mean, this podcast went from like sexy vampire romances to, uh, like you said, manga. So it's been all over the place. But I really, I liked it. I really liked her style and I kind of like that sort of nexus, like I said, of like dark fantasy and gothic and... I love a, like a really good ghost story, so I thought that was good. Yeah, I, I figured you would like it, and I'm glad you did. I'm glad I wasn't wrong about that. I mean, it's not going to be like Santa Claus punching out a Krampus, but... I'd love to see a, a story <laughs> with the Krampus by Becky Clinton. I think she'd do a great job yeah, I think with so that, too. that motherfucker. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Sex, sexy Krampus? Sexy doomed lover Krampus? Pre-order our... Yeah, we want a copy. Yeah. All right, so I mean, I think do we have anything else to say about this comic? I don't think so. Do you want to reveal what we're doing, or are you going to keep it under your hat? Uh, no, I can reveal what we're doing. So this is our last March thing, right? It's weird because we record in advance. Technically, it's still February for us. I'm sorry to break the illusion for y'all. <laughs> We've gone through the third wall. But uh, so next month, I think we're appropriately. We brought them up a couple times. Uh, we're going to cover some Conan the Barbarian. Uh, for an is it a double? Sh- I was going to say, is it a double shot, Conan, or just a single shot? Uh, I mean, I think, I think we're going to cover. We're we're going to just do Conan for the novella, so we're not going to get two Conan episodes in a month. But I think we're going to do two Conan stories in the one episode. Okay. I think we're going to do Rogues in the House and the Frost Giant's Daughter, which are both. I had a collection a while back from the seventies that had just those two stories in it. So I think they're a good little double feature. Okay. Okay. We've got a cat pawing at the door. And if there's a cat being picked up on the recording. Uh, and then for we're going to start our, our new 
ongoing series. Tell me. I don't even know what it is. Reveal it to me and I'll be shocked and, not, and pass it on to you. I mean, I've mentioned it before. Uh, we are going to do The Wicked and the Divine, uh, which is another image thing. So we'll be following up an image comic with an image comic. Uh, it's written by Karen Gillan and drawn by Jamie McKelvey. And it's a story about uh, gods in the modern age being reincarnated. It's a story about, like, celebrity and, like, music and stuff. I think it's going to be really cool. And I think it's going to work really well for, like, the kinds of stuff we're into. And it's not a Vertigo comic. Ah. I know nothing about it. So this is going to be... I think you're going to be very comic book momish when I get reading this. I think you're going to dig it. It's one of those comics... Uh, where the guy writing it makes, like, Spotify playlists for each volume and stuff. Okay, okay. I think you'll dig it. So, yeah, so uh, next month we're going to do Conan, and then we're going to start The Wicked and the Divine, which will be our new ongoing comic series. Excellent. That sounds very exciting. All right, so, uh, spoiler alert, stay tuned. Bye, everyone.